Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is such a pleasure to bring you today's episode with Hamid Jabbar. I have had this podcast in my heart for some time, and getting to connect with Hamid was such a great honor and explore the world of minerals as they exist within the soil and as they exist within us and the animals that we eat and the land that we share a life with. And I actually, during the episode, talk about this beautiful oracle. I guess you could call it an oracle deck that I have from Usi Design Studio. It'll be linked in the show notes called Materia Prima. And I've had it for a couple of years. Uh, They actually, the only decks I own are made by them. I just think that they're incredible. And at the beginning of their, their book for the deck, Linnea Getz and Peter Dunham, the owners of Usi Design Studio, have a little note that I want to read in, in relationship to this podcast. And so it is. All things in life are collective. Nature is inescapably cooperative. We share with the stars, the clouds, the bees, and each other the same elements that created the complicated world we live in. This cooperative endeavor forms life and is the bewitching mystery of the periodic table, the materia prima of our unified existence. I think a lot about the collective. You know, our our name on Instagram and website is the Groundwork Collective, and that really has been in an effort that I really view us as all threads in this grand tapestry and that we are all connected through a sort of magic that we we don't yet know or understand that we may never know or understand. And I know that one of these magical threads of connection is certainly minerals. And I know this because I've seen it in the way that the soil loves death and that when when death occurs in the forest, it nourishes soil with all the minerals of the life that that body, that carcass once was, and that those minerals go into the soil and the soil is nourished by them and then gives them back to the plant But it is also the way in which fungi within the soil begin to scavenge for minerals from rocks, which is just the compression of life from long ago. And this organic matter is constantly cycling in and out of life and death and rebirth. And I think that this act puts us in such a state of connection that is also beyond time. And for anybody that has read uh, uh, Robert McFarlane's Underland, which is one of my favorite books of all time, he talks about this concept of deep time that we see in the way that the the formations, the rock formations and the salt mines of earth 
behave. And, and these are getting recycled back into life as we know it right now. And all of it is just matter from the stars and the Big Bang. And I think in that sense, minerals are what connect us and what gives us this grand sense of timelessness that is so beautiful. And you'll hear Hamid in this podcast talk about time and our concept of it and what else might be out there. We've talked a lot about curiosity within the context of this podcast and how that's one of my core values is curiosity. And it, it has been such a gift in this podcast to just get to follow my curiosity, right? Each guest is representative of something that I'm curious about. And it's rather selfish in that way, though I hope that it is also a reflection of some of the topics and some of the conversations that you dear listener, are also curious about. This conversation about minerals is also a conversation about where we came from and our maternal lineages and how that has influenced our very genetics, the very foods that we crave, and how it will influence our children. One of the things I didn't get a chance to fully discuss with Hamid and that I'm hoping to discuss in some upcoming episodes is this idea of how minerals have left our soils. And I do just want to briefly discuss what has happened in the last 50, 60 years that has changed our our soils. And so much of this has happened since the introduction of glyphosate, which was first patented as a mineral chelator, which means that it's pulling minerals out of the soil, and was then patented as an antibiotic. And as you'll hear Hamid in this podcast discusses how minerals are part of the currency of life, And the word antibiotic means anti-life and meaning that it destroys all of the bacteria and the fungi in the soil that have this beautiful relationship where they are able to move minerals into our food. And I think that this is just such an incredible process. And I want to read this quick quote about how this happens. Many crops, including wheat, corn, rice, soybeans, potatoes, bananas, yams, flax, and coffee, form partnerships with mycorrhizal fungi. Why would fungi help plants take up minerals like zinc? Fungi themselves can't photosynthesize, so they make trades with plants, zinc for sun-made foods. Such exchanges occur in the wild frontier beneath our feet in a place called the rhizosphere, from the Greek rhiza, meaning root. This halo-like zone extends from a few millimeters to a centimeter or so each, around each and every root and root hair. It's a lively place. The soil immediately around plant roots hosts a grand and busy bazaar with nutritious meals for microbes exuding from the roots of a plant into the rhizosphere. Mycorrhizal fungi and soil-dwelling bacteria lap up these exudates and in return give plants nutrients and metabolites that boost botanical growth and defense. Mycorrhizal fungi also convey underground signals to plants that help tee up defenses to repel pathogens like those that cause tomato blight. Some fungi even help plants share nutrients. The benefits plants receive from 
stocking the rhizosphere with exudates underpins the botanical world's healthcare plan. Robert Starkey described the key role soil microbes play in decomposing once-living matter, a process that keeps elements circulating from soil to plants and animals and back again. Although Waxman began to appreciate what soil bacteria and fungi did for plants, why microbes did it remained cryptic. It was only decades later that deciphering the chemical language between plants and microbes unveiled complex interactions central to negotiating the challenges of the botanical world's stuck-in-place lifestyle. Understanding reciprocity in an agricultural context means understanding that carbon is the main currency in nature's underground economy. It makes up about half of soil organic matter. The exudates that flow out of a plant's roots into the rhizosphere are another source of carbon. Since soil as a whole is carbon poor relative to the rhizosphere, most soil microbes live in or very close to the rhizosphere. The specific organic compounds and mixtures that plants release into the soil, sugars, proteins, organic acids, vitamins, enzymes, and even fats, attract specific microbes to colonize the rhizosphere. These recruits are a diverse lot. Some physically block pathogen access to roots. Others produce antimicrobials that drive away specific pathogens. In so doing, plants actively recruit and support communities of microbes instrumental to their own well-being, establishing relationships that lie at the heart of plant and crop health. Something I found so beautiful about this that Hamidi and I talk a little bit about is just the diversity that sits inside the soil and how much of that is building a rich atmosphere of trade and of life. And so I just want to leave you with the beautiful collective that exists within the soil and how that gets upcycled into our grand collective here in community with one another. This episode with Hamid is beautiful. And I encourage you to listen all the way through. And if it resonates with you, if you feel that sense of, oh, this is what I've been looking for. I just wanted to ask if you would share it with a friend or share it on social media, or even leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find this podcast and find the value that you're experiencing, if you are indeed experiencing that value. And so I'm just, I'm so excited for you to hear this and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Please reach out. Let me know what you thought about this beautiful episode with the incredible and the eloquent and just his voice is medicine. This is Hamid Jabbar. So I've been really interested in how minerals are upcycled from the soil and what happens at the root of the soil is this beautiful exchange of carbon for minerals. And then that gets taken up into the plant and then animals eat that plant matter and thus the minerals that are in that plant tissue. And then we eat these animals and all of their beautiful tissues and meat from, you know, in my work, it's from regenerative farms. And then those minerals come into me. And I just began to see this beautiful cycle that was happening within the realm of minerals just here on my regenerative farm and this sort of cycle of, of life in the soil and then death 
of animals back into this idea of life and also the way that the animals give life to the soil in their manure and their urine and the way that they move across the land. And so this was really what got me interested in minerals. And I actually I pulled a little quote from a book I've been reading to open us off on kind of this foot before we dive into your beautiful perspective on minerals. And this quote is from What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health by David Montgomery and Anne Bickley. Organic matter, being the remains of once living things, contains the full range of elements essential to life. So once integrated into biological systems, they circulate through nature's grand cycle of life, death, decay, and rebirth, getting passed down and through the successive generations. We can't eat rocks, but we can eat what eats rocks, the green bodies of plants, as well as plant-eating animals, and the mineral micronutrients in their bodies have make-or-break functions in our own bodies. Nature long ago figured out how to recycle vital mineral elements back into living things. The soil is where this happens. Consider that nobody fertilized tropical jungles, the native prairies of the Great Plains, or old-growth rainforests of the Pacific Northwest. Yet the lush growth of plants in all these environments relies on getting back, getting both major and minor elements out of the soil and into their bodies through roots that only reach so far. How did they manage? Trillions of tiny allies, soil dwellers, bacteria and fungi are the worker bees of the subterranean world. They produce enzymes and organic acids that release the minerals held in rocks and organic matter for plants to take up. And when soil fungi and bacteria consume organic matter, they are the creatures that in turn eat them metabolic and convert their meals into soluble nutrients that plants can take back up and use again. In this way, soil microbes act as a procurement and supply system for plants. (laughs) It's a miracle. (laughs) And then I found your work and I began to better understand how that miracle is taking place within our own bodies. And so now that you know a little bit of where I have come from on this mineral journey, I would love to know how you came to be so curious about minerals. Well, I, well, I really love that quote you just read. That was, that was brilliant. And I actually learned a little bit about you know, the way that the enzymes are released with the bacteria and the fungus, which I, I think you know a lot more about that than I do since you work with the land more and more from um, the health perspective, working with the human body and the soil within our bodies. And, I, you know, my journey into this has been long, so I don't know how long we need to go into it. But when I was when I was in my teenage years, I started to struggle with some, some body image issues. I was gaining a lot of weight and I, and I, and I realized, you know, there's something wrong with, with this situation because I was eating what they had taught us in school, you know, the food pyramid. (laughs) (laughs) That That paragon of health. Yeah. I'm doing everything right. And I was working out a lot and, I was very active, so it was all of a sudden, and I got into reading some some work about hunter-gatherers mm. and their diets, yeah. you know, people that lived before agriculture. And as a 15-year-old, I think it was 14 or 15, it really just shocked me that that information wasn't taught 
I thought this is this is the first time I ever encountered something that I would consider a paradigm shift mm. where what I was reading was so contrary to what everybody thought and I I I actually dove into that and decided I'm going to experiment on myself. I'm going to adopt a hunter gatherer type diet and try to eat like our ancient ancestors and pretty quickly I got really back in shape and I had more energy and I was like this is amazing why does nobody this was, by the way, 1994, 1995, and I live in Texas. <laughs> and I remember, you know, going to school and realizing there's nothing I can eat. Like I go out with my friends, there's nothing I can eat because everything is so um, processed and it's filled with all these things. So everybody thought it was really weird. But I think that started me out on the right foot in life because yes. I'm just, it got me used to being the, the weird one that, didn't eat at the time. I was like, I wouldn't eat bread. I mean, this is like one of the philosophies of the hunter gatherer. Absolutely. And way, way before the, the explosion of the paleo and carnivore and ancestral diets. Yeah. They didn't have a name because it wasn't paleo didn't come around until around like 2000. By by the time the year 2000 came around, I was already into this like six years and I thought, Oh, you all are like way behind. No, I've been, I was doing this before there was a name called paleo and then I was onto other things and I, I'm kind of curious about everything. So I went to music school and then I went into working as a lawyer, really intellectual, Uh, you know, the law is really fascinating to me because it's about logic Mm -hmm. and reason. And hopefully that's what it's about. That's what it was about for me. I, I will just say as a side note, my favorite course in law school was property law. It was about land and reading these old cases about people and land ownership and just understanding how we had divided the land and all of it comes from the farming traditions. And after that, you know, the long journey continued into yoga and meditation. And I studied body work and some forms of herbal medicine in Thailand. And then I got introduced to plant medicines and going down to the jungle and Peru, some of the highlands as well. And I start to just see just the interplay of health and how people do things very differently in different cultures, yet they all arrive at some kind of balance. And and when you come back to the United States, at least that's where I live, I'm like, there's something wrong. Yeah, there's no (laughs) balance. Why have we not, why have we not figured out how to, how to be balanced? Yes. And yeah, so that started me into this kind of more bigger picture, like trying to understand the differences. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that minerals came into my awareness and I didn't really pay that much attention to them. I had friends talking about it and it's just kind of, and you're, you know, there's a place in your awareness where people will mention things, but just bounces off. It's just like, just bouncing off, bouncing off. Not ready to receive it at that time. Not ready to receive it. Yeah. And, and then I heard a podcast with this guy named Morley Robbins, who is the founder of a protocol called the Root Cause Protocol. He's fairly well known in the mineral world, but outside of that world, nobody will know Morley Robbins. I heard Morley talk and I said, oh my God, this guy is... It was another one of those paradigm shift moments where it finally clicked that it's not just about the minerals, it's just another way of looking at the universe and ourselves And you have to understand that lens before any of it makes any sense. Otherwise, it just sounds like people are telling you to drop minerals into your body without an understanding of the importance of them. 
And that's how I ended up going through training with him and, and learning more about just the mineral dynamics in the world and a little bit about the soil and our bodies. And because I had this background of, you know, many, many, many years now, 25 years of just curiosity about different diets and, and different esoteric traditions and plant medicines. Then I started to put some pieces together and I start to share some of that stuff online and I think that's how you found me. <laughs> that is how I found you. And it, it resonated so deeply. And I think that people like you that love to synthesize a vast array of information sort of through their vehicle of curiosity make some of the most profound statements and paradigm shifts for other people because you have that generalist perspective that brings in all these different threads and weaves them weave them together in a way that feels like oh okay this is this is pulling from here and here and here and I'm beginning to see this grander picture take place which I know is what I felt when I found you and I I heard you on the mythic the mythic medicine podcast and also on Matt Blackburn's podcast, and then just dove into your world. And I think one of the first things I read, and I, I wrote this down to kind of juxtapose against the quote that I just read uh, on minerals, that minerals are the material prima of the universe. They are the fundamental building blocks, the roots, the foundation, the essence of existence. The word material is Latin for... Um, the materia and derived from mater, meaning mother, and matrix, meaning vulva or womb. Minerals are also magic, performing incredible tricks with electrons, electromagnetism, light, and even sound. When we remember that we are made up of minerals, we remember that we are magic too, in every sense of the word. We defy all logic, and yet we exist. And I think something that you said just now, which is that minerals are so much more than just some another yet another exogenous substance that we can take in a supplemental form but they really are underlying the foundation of everything that we are and we see this from the soil all the way up yeah you know a lot of the traditions that i was with they always talk about how the earth is our mother and the mother you know births us we're made up of the earth but that sounds really poetic, except until you realize, no, it's 100% of our body is made up of the earth. And so we really are birthed from the earth. And, you know, when you start to realize what's happened to the farming system and the soils, you start to see the reflection of what's happened to us. You know, where the soils have been depleted and so have we. Yes. And, and that should, should be a wake up call, except, you know, there's a, there's a growing movement of people getting into understanding this process, you know, the regenerative farmers and other curious people, but the rest of the world is kind of chugging along as though, you know, the soil doesn't matter. Yes. And I think, oh, I, I think we are ready for a paradigm shift and there have been people within this space for a long time that were sounding the alarms that saw what we were doing to the soil and felt a concern specifically through the lens of minerals. And there are estimates that we've lost 
anywhere from 5 to 40% of the mineral content of our soils. And uh, there was actually, there was a woman named Eve Balfour, and she did a lot of studies in the 1940s and 50s looking at mineral loss in the soil and how that impacted the plants and animals that we eat and found that just by using organic practices where you weren't applying herbicides and pesticides that act as mineral chelators inside the soil, uh, destroying, destroying both life and mineral life, she found just how much more minerals were in animals that were grazing on organic pastures, and even to the point where milk had 15% higher concentration of vitamin C just from grazing organic pastures. And so I think that there, there is increasing evidence and increasing concern that soil health is our health and vice versa, just like you said. Yeah. You know, in that quote you read about materia prima and the matrix, it's fascinating as well because we also think about matter as solid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you start to get anywhere into the world of the quantum, which, by the way, anybody that talks about quantum physics is probably wrong unless they're a quantum physicist, so I'm probably wrong. <laughs> but, but I'm still fascinated by the idea that two different observers can observe subatomic particles in different places at the same time because it's it's our consciousness actually creates the the place where the things are that's very difficult for our minds to understand and and then we get this reductionist view of our bodies from modern medicine and we forget that there's a lot of magic happening that that atoms are not solid we think of them as solid even a atom of copper or whatever is not solid it's uh it's an energetic sphere with with the electrons and protons i mean this is really beyond our comprehension and so when i talk about the magic of minerals as well it's like we don't even understand how important they are we can kind of get a glimpse of their function within our body with the tools that we have to measure them but I think they're doing so much more just for our life. And, you know, we're beyond the body, you know, our consciousness. And that's the problem with modern medicine is they want to dissect the body and understand it. But if you cut open a cadaver, you're not going to find consciousness. You're not going to find the the emotions, the dreams and the, that, that part is kind of absent from our observation. I think that when we get into the mineral space, there's, there's stuff beyond the physical and that's kind of why I made that little statement about the materia prima because there's something fundamental to our universe and to consciousness and to who we are that resides or is carried through with with minerals and each one has its own sort of energy and I start to see that more you know the more I open my mind to seeing that the more I see it. I think that's such a a beautiful place to begin in so many ways. We talk a lot on this podcast about that break where we stop looking at the whole being greater than the sum of its parts and getting into that reductionist or Cartesian sort of Newtonian model of, of medicine and of just the way that we look at all things, that we want to break it down into these sort of 
simple pieces of understanding and not the grand mystery of how it all fits together and just how much we don't know. And I think that our hubris is evident everywhere, but I think that it is profound within the realms of nutrition and medicine, which I think we don't even begin to understand how as chemical and mineral and energetic and light beings, how, how many different things integrate just into this body. And you said something, and I have to bring up something you wrote about that I love, which is when we talk about reductionism and wanting to separate parts, that we often separate mind and body, that we separate consciousness out of this too, when really these are all a whole, that, that our consciousness and our mind and our body are, are one. Yeah, there's, there's this kind of phenomenon where everyone's like the mind-body connection. And, and I'm like, well, even you say they're connected, it implies that they're separate and there's some kind of thing that connects the two separate things. And I don't know that they're separate. That's one of the things that I'm starting to try to poke holes at is the idea that our consciousness is separate from our body or our body is separate from our consciousness. I think the idea that they figured out, oh, DNA makes matter and blah, blah, blah. I don't know that it works that way exactly. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at how we exist and that our bodies are reflections of our consciousness in some way. Like we're perfectly reflecting our emotions, our beliefs, our ideas in any given moment. And that's, that's the way our bodies form. Our bodies might be a little slower to reflect our consciousness. So the, the effects come later. But then our minds and our emotions are reflections of our bodies as well. You know, there's, I work with a lot of people in their health journeys and I've had my own health struggles. And I can tell you that when you don't feel good in the body, you don't feel good emotionally or in the mind. And then which one is causing which? It's hard to even figure out what's the source. Is the body the source? Is the mind the source? I think it's all just one, one phenomenon that I think there's not a lot of framework around because we've been, we've been so separate. Like you said, you know, the body exists and consciousness. And now then the, the yoga people, which I was a part of would say, Oh, it's a mind body connection. And then I'm not saying, I'm saying it's not a connection. They're the same thing. It's the same thing. (laughs) And I think it, it harkens back to me with this idea that we're separate from nature, that, that humans are different or separate or above or below whatever juxtaposition you put us with nature when really we are a part of that. And that separation is a myth. And I think that when we are able to, come home and to erase that illusion of separation, that is when some wholeness might begin to take place. And I, I think that it's, it's in that same lens. And I hadn't considered this until I read that post of yours. Because we are so want in Western culture to reduce and to separate and to tease things apart, when really these things are inextricably linked. They, they can't be teased apart. They are one in the same. And, you know, we are nature. We, we are mind and body and consciousness and so much more. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Separation is also the source of most suffering. Just that, that idea that people have that they're separate 
and that's one of the biggest that is one of the biggest issues i see in just civilization is that it seeks to separate us from each other and from from the earth and put us in our little boxes you know you you live out in in, in a great place but like a lot of people in the cities you know it's I mean, it's just one wall separating you and everybody wants to feel like in their own space it's like it's a very very interesting phenomenon because i i do talk to people a lot and they think you know i need to go connect with nature that even just the concept that you have to go connect with nature is a problem yes <laughs> you're denying the fact that you are nature yes that it's uh, inherent so, in you yeah I think about that too. There's a, there's a beautiful talk that Zach Bush gave not too long ago, if you're familiar with him. And he was talking yeah. about the genesis of cancer being this disconnection of cells, that the cell suddenly is unable to communicate outside of itself to the cells that surround it, and it becomes isolated. And that this lack of communication, this lack of connectivity is where cancer begins and then it metastasizes to the cells around it. And I really think that connection, and I think it looks a lot of different ways, right? It's a connection to self and it's a connection to others, but it's also this recognition that no connection needed. We are nature. We are others. We exist as a collective and that there are, there's so much flow between all of us. And I actually, to bring it back to minerals, that is one place where I can really see that flow is that that upcycling from soil to plant to animal to us, but also the way that it responds to death, you know, just in the, in the forest that when a fox dies and its carcass decomposes, that phosphorus goes back into the soil as its bones degrade. And some of that meat is maybe scavenged by coyotes that take those minerals and leftover minerals go into the grass that then maybe in a couple of years, a deer begins to eat. And we just see this connectivity in our mineral nature. I don't know if that makes sense, but... There is no waste in nature. That's one thing that I've seen. You know, I live out in the country too. There's, there's no waste. There's, there's nothing that, that isn't part of a system. You know, it's just constantly regenerating itself and it's perfect. And th that's part of the problem is it's so complex and it's so perfect. You know, we think that we can alter it. Our, our tiny little human minds are, are not there yet to, to no. understand that. No, not in the least. And I wonder with that, if we might dive in a little bit to minerals. And the first thing that I actually wondered if you might be so generous as to start with is this idea of the matrix and the mother and the womb and the mitochondrial DNA from which we came from. And I think you were the first person that I heard talk about this in a way that I just felt in my bones. And so I wondered if you might share. Again, this is a, this is a beautiful, deep exploration that, that gets painful sometimes because you have to really go into the uncertainty and think about, I think about how it depends on your view, but if you buy into what the astrophysicists and people that study time say is that there was a, there was a time, I guess you could say a time where there was no time. And our universe had an, 
hadn't been birthed yet. It's very complicated to understand a time when there was no time because time is a dimension that's created as the universe expands. It's just a dimension that we can't see. We have these five senses that experience time as this phenomenon of kind of moving forward, if you will. And that's very weird. We can experience, you know, up, down, sideways, these other three dimensions much more easily, but the universe was, was just a singularity. It means everything that we know was compacted into a point infinitesimally small. Now you look around like my living room, I can't even imagine compacting everything in this living room to a point infinitesimally small, let alone everything in our known universe, which is so beyond our comprehension of how big it is that we can't, the human mind doesn't understand this. But in this moment, there was a great expansion that created the dimension of time and it created the dimension of space, but everything was pure energy. So matter material didn't exist at the beginning material comes as a byproduct of the energy that's that's expanding and it sort of creates different elements you know we have the periodic table of elements but this is just a two-dimensional chart this is nothing like the real deal which is how you get subatomic particles and things starting to form so in a way the materia the materia prima is that it's the it's the stuff that created everything the planets and the stars and our earth and then you get into the concept of well what is that materia prima well it is a matrix in a way it is a it is a, a fabric it's a you know in the latin they say it's it's coming from the, the word womb but we're coming out of that in some way that's hard for us to understand because you know, again, we get into the idea that oh, we can only perceive these three and four dimensions. But even if you ask the string theorists, they say there has to be 11. Or the quantum theorists say there has to be 20 something. Well, what is it? I mean, who knows? But it's definitely beyond what we're experiencing here. And the minerals, in my mind, are those things that help us birth into this this dimension that we're in, the reality that we're in. There's some part that's that's a carryover from that first big expansion. And I don't know that we really understand the implications of that. When it comes to who we are in our bodies and and what we're made of, we're constantly being born into a new body. We're constantly regenerating our body. We're creating it. And so in a way, we're rebirthing ourselves at any given moment. You know, you've regrown your body many times. And what's the force doing that? You know, your, your conscious mind, what is that? I don't know, but there's elements that we're starting to understand that, of course, they come through our lineage. They come through our mother. They come through her mother. You know, I'm not necessarily fixated on the notion that DNA is everything for who we are, but at, at some level, we understand that these bodies that we live in are very complex, and they have to do one thing really well in order for our life force to exist, and they have to make energy. We actually are we're power powerhouses. We have to create life energy. We have to create, you know think of it like electricity, but it's a bit different than electricity. You know, 
we're, we're creating some kind of life force that keeps us alive. It's like, there's something within us that is not tangible that wants to live. And that life force is constantly being birthed out of ourselves. So just to bring it back into like, if I was explaining it to a seventh grader, because the, the cells have these little parts in them that are called mitochondria that make energy. You know, we can just keep it simple. They're little powerhouses, but they're inherited just through our mother's side. So they're always looking to make energy based on what they learned from our mother and what they learned from her mother, because they're kind of existing in that reality. So one thing that is really interesting is that we don't get any of this from our father. I, th I think that, that not to disregard dads, but we don't get the power houses from our <laughs> father. <laughs> we may get eye color, hair color, these other traits, but that thing that keeps us alive, that thing that provides all of our energy is coming only from our mom and from her mom. And to me, that shows that there's a real connection that we have to start making with our mother's side of the family and, and our lineage there to understand the life force within us on a very simple level. If our grandmother, you know, that's where all of our, that's where the eggs that became us formed. You know, we were, we were in our grandmother's womb inside of our mother. So you can go back in time and imagine, well, what was my grandmother going through when, she was pregnant with my mother. I mean, this is, this is the 1950s in my case, you know, that's that I was alive there as an egg and my mitochondria, they sensed what was going on in her life. They sensed the emotions and the traumas and also the food she was eating. And they probably decided on some level that we still don't understand. They call it epigenetics. There's kind of changes that happen they decided that that was the circumstances that would be best to, to create life. And so they kind of are looking for that in our current life. You know, this is one aspect of discovering what to eat that I, I didn't take account of when I was a hunter gatherer, when I was 15 years old, I was looking too far. I was looking to my ancestors like 20,000 years ago when I should have just been looking to my grandmother because my, my belief was, oh, well, our DNA doesn't adapt that fast. But actually, I think our powerhouses, our mitochondria, they adapt a lot faster. Oh, they're much more clever and they're much more adaptable to epigenetic changes that happen rapidly. I think within the context of mitochondria that they came from, you know, there's this, there's this theory and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this a little bit, but that mitochondria were an independent bacteria that got taken in by our cells. And so they really are more something else than they are human in that way to me, that, yeah. that they were integrated into us and there was a reciprocity of relationship that indicated to, from, you know, one multicellular life form to one unicellular life form that we could really work together in a way that would be mutually beneficial. And so the yeah. idea that they might adapt faster or have a different 
maybe we could actually look at it a different scope of time. Mm, yeah. It's very interesting to me. I don't think most people that I know realize that we're basically symbionts. We're, we're create, we're, we're a human, but we're made up of tiny ancient bacteria. Yes. And more, more bacteria, more viruses, more fungi and parasites, like that DNA of all of those things that we are carrying outnumbers ours almost logarithmically. And I always have this question, if we are literally more other than we are what we perceive as self, what are the amazing implications of that? Whether it's what you said, that we are these symbionts, that we are a vehicle for other life more than anything, or that the self is far more complex than we could ever wrap our tiny human brains around. Yeah. It's really complex. And that's kind of when we were talking about consciousness as well. Who's, who's driving the ship? <laughs> yeah. I think about that a lot. <laughs> so I'm curious what happened when you begin to look at things through the lens of your grandmother and what she might've been eating and to to go just that far back in time. And both of our grandmothers were at, uh, 1950s is when we would have been eggs inside of them. So we share that. It's really interesting because when I think back to the time where I read my first book on hunter gatherers, it was given to me by my grandmother, my mom's mom. Hmm. And she gave me that book and she said, you should read this. But what was interesting is I always loved my grandmother so much and her cooking was such a big part of my childhood just the way that she would cook and she was hungarian so it was very different than my dad's side who's middle eastern so she would make just these fancy hungarian dishes and i just i was really enamored by it and i started to of course switch because all of the foods that she made they were not what hunter gatherers ate so when she gave me that book i thought this was kind of encouragement like go down this rabbit hole and and but she she got very old she lived to 93 she probably would have lived longer i think the medical system really makes it hard for people these days when they get to a certain age with all the medications but she ate her diet her entire life she never went on any diet that i know of she ate really well. She ate just in such a way. And I, and I started to see, you know, there's wisdom there that why am I not, I know, you know, I have to read a book to learn how to eat. My grandmother knows how to eat. She's, she lived to an old age eating what she ate. Why am I thinking that I have to go read a hundred books on it when I have that knowledge? So for me, it was also a recognition that, okay, there's also just, this rejection of our lineage a lot of times because it's this intellectual searching. And nowadays you can find a thousand diet books, everybody trying to learn how to eat from a book. And, and for me, it was more just a reconnection with honoring the wisdom that was within my family. And so I trying to go back and look at recipes and remember the foods that my grandmother ate and trying them with, without a fear because the other aspect that I think is really important is people get fearful of food 
And the energy with which you have a relationship with food will dictate whether it's nourishing or not. If you have any modicum of fear when you eat something, that's not going to be good for you. You're in the wrong state. So you have to eat with gratitude. You have to eat with love. And I think that was much more important Mm -hmm. to my understanding. And those foods that my grandma raised, you know, when I was growing up, she was making, they have an emotional feeling to them. You can't help but feel love and gratitude. And she always would say, you know, like, well, the reason my tastes so good is because I put love in it. But that's also the energy that I discovered from, from going back into those foods and thinking, you know, they feel really good. And they, the, the consciousness aspect of it and my body responds much better than I thought it would. The intellectual part of me is like, you shouldn't be eating that stuff because I had learned all this other stuff, but it's not true. And, and so it's kind of a dissection of this other paradigm. We're living in a world, especially Instagram is filled with everybody telling you what to eat and what not to eat. And it gets really confusing. So to me, it's more just, can we just stop and go back and see what did our, what did our great grandparents, what did our grandparents eat? doesn't mean we have to eat the same things, but just understand that our body in some way, our mitochondria, they're probably looking for that. They're probably waiting for that. Whether it's the energetic signature that I don't know how to define or whether it's the actual physical components of that food that they're looking for. But it seems to work better with my body. I think, too, you hit on something Our grandparents didn't have to read books on what to eat. And I see that every day with my animals. Nobody, nobody tells the goats what to eat. They just know. And they know beyond, beyond our wildest dreams of just with a precision. Have you, have you read the work of Fred Provenza? No. I talk about Fred a lot on this podcast, but he wrote a book called Nourishment, and he does a lot of studies out of the University of Utah. And he does a lot of studies looking at the precision with which livestock, and he works with ruminants in particular, will select the exact minerals that they need for their health based on where they are in different plant species. And that this will vary by age and by sex and by all of these different factors, but it is so precise that he recently did a study and they deprived sheep of all phosphorus, that there was there was no available phosphorus for them in their diet. And they were waiting for their serum blood levels of phosphorus to go down, and they wouldn't go down. And the research team was just stumped by this. There's no phosphorus in the pasture. How is it possible that these sheep are still getting phosphorus? And they were reaching over the fence to eat the droppings of the sheep in the other pasture that had not been deprived of phosphorus. And they didn't need a book to tell them that phosphorus did this or that inside of their bodies. They just knew and needed and craved and ate with, with no fear. We have that ability too. That's the thing. <laughs> Most people don't realize that our taste sensations, what we're craving is usually telling us something. Of course, we're, we're surrounded by foods that probably don't have the thing that we're craving, but we'll crave it. This is one of the problems. So I start to look at that for myself and I really just, that's, if I want to give you a diet, that's my diet now. It's like, 
What am I craving? What is my body asking for? And I don't eat processed food, so it's not like I'm going to be craving Oreos or something. I haven't had those kinds of things since I was a kid, but if I'm craving more salt or more fat or, you know, like red meat or I'm not craving, there's times where I'm like, Oh, I don't want any red meat. I have to eat um, cheese instead. You know, there's always like a wisdom here. And when I work with people, I'm always asking them about what they're craving. And I also ask them about their thirst because what, how thirsty are you? This is a big indication of your mineral status. And that's stuff that, you know, should probably be taught when we were young is to, to really understand what our bodies are craving because we're so in the mind. I think the big, the big karma, if you want to use that word that humans have to deal with is our minds that get in the way of a full, um, dropping into our humanness because we'll think our way out of it. <laughs> and that's, that's the idea of books and going to school. Absolutely. I actually think it's, it's almost not that we need to teach kids, but that we need to just let them be right. I, I, I know someone who leaves butter and salt on the counter so that her kids can just come by when, when they feel the need for that and, and fuel themselves. Because I think that, that knowledge is there in us when we're born and it's our societal structures and our focus from our, you know, our higher brains or more of our lizard brains that, that gets in the way. Yeah. That's beautiful. Cause I remember when I was a kid, this is, I don't have a lot of the memories, but I have the memories of my mom would, you know, siphon off a part of my plate and she would say, you have to eat this. Otherwise you can't leave the dinner table, but I didn't want to eat it because there is a part of us that knows what we need. And I think that was not, it's not to blame my mother because she was doing what she thought, you know, she, she should do to make sure that I eat. But there was, there's parts of me that were probably like, no, that's not, that's not what my body wants or needs right now. But I yes. learned to override it. I learned to just force my way through it and ignore those those signals. Yes. I think there's something to be said for learning how to just let them be. You know, let kids not be hungry or be outrageously hungry in a single setting and want that let them not want their broccoli or only want to eat their broccoli. What whatever that thing is, to just let that wisdom be there so that it can be there when we're older and our brains are much more uh, likely to get in the way. Yeah. But what I've realized with the mineral research is that oftentimes what we are craving relates to some kind of mineral that we need, just like, was it goats or sheep that you were talking about that that they knew? Sheep. Yeah. The sheep, sheep. the sheep know you know, that's what our cravings are telling us is we're missing something essential. Uh, we need to get that usually. I, I want to dive right into talking about minerals. Um, but first I actually, I don't want to miss this. You mentioned something about thirst. And I think before we dive into specific minerals that this is so important. And I actually pulled a quote from you that, Thirst is mostly about minerals, not water. If you are thirsty, take some time to understand what your body is asking you to provide. And you go on to say that when working perfectly, our bodies can essentially make all the water they need without the need to drink. However, our bodies cannot make the minerals we need. And 
I loved this. And we, we actually just did a podcast with Carrie Bennett and she talked about exclusion zone water and water as a byproduct of making ATP. Mm-hmm. And, and so that our body is capable of, of making water and, and it probably isn't a byproduct at all, but it's really part of, part of what we're supposed to yeah. be making. But I wanted you to touch on this and then I want to dive into some, some specificity here. Yeah. So those mitochondria we were talking about that make the energy, one of the the main tasks is to make water. You know, we breathe oxygen, O2, fat, the food we eat. Fat, if you look at it, is just carbon and hydrogen strung together, essentially, chains. And the mitochondria are able to synthesize the oxygen and the hydrogen. We exhale the carbon as carbon dioxide or it goes into our body in some other way. But the byproduct is water if our bodies are working well. If we're not working well, often we don't make water. We make H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide, which causes inflammation. But, you know, this is, this is something that I just observed because I live in the middle of the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. And there's deer, there's bobcats, there's tons of creatures. I mean, not just reptile, animal, you know, mammals and birds and there's no water anywhere and there's rain you know a couple times here and there but it doesn't stick around there's no lakes there's no rivers and i watch the rabbits and they're peeing i watch them all the time they're creating water and i'm thinking you know about the people that used to live here there's native american people that used to live back there and there's no way that they had hydro flasks you know and gallon jugs that they would carry around So there's something wrong with our situation if we're needing a lot of water. And it wasn't until I got into the minerals that I realized our taste instinct, this or our thirst instinct rather, it evolved at a time where the only water sources we would have would be natural water sources like rivers, streams, or even worse, maybe um, not clean water. So if we had the urge to go drink was it for the water or was it for the minerals in that water? And knowing that we're able to make water from our mitochondria, it doesn't make sense that we would be craving the water in most cases. We probably needed the magnesium and the other trace minerals more. And I started to just experiment with that in the work that I do with people as a health coach and just ask them, because I, I would see people in person carrying lots of water. Those people... I I would ask them, you know, like, how much water do you drink? They're like, I'm always thirsty. I'm drinking all the time. And without fail, these are the most magnesium deficient people I've ever met. And it started to correlate pretty heavily that I could get to the point where I just asked people, like, how much water are you drinking? Are you really thirsty? And people are like, I'm so thirsty. I drink water all the time. And usually if we look at their labs, (laughs) they're very magnesium deficient. And so I think what we are craving usually is the magnesium um, that, that would have been in the waters. And the thirst is a sign that our bodies are telling us to get it. But when we just drink water that's filtered or doesn't have minerals in it, we're doing exactly the opposite. We're stripping ourselves of minerals and then you're just going to be thirsty and thirsty and thirsty all the time. And then you get to a place where modern society says you need to drink this many glasses of water a day. And I can tell you just because I work with a lot of people that when people start to remineralize, they start to get a good balance of minerals, especially their magnesium, their thirst goes away. 
So I don't know that this is, this is not a double blind placebo controlled trial. This is just an observation based on the most my, important kind, <laughs> yeah. the observation kind. Yeah. And, yeah. and people can try it for themselves and they'll say, Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't drink nearly as much water now that I'm putting mineral drops in my water or upping my magnesium. Or getting spring water. I know yeah. that I know that I noticed my own desire for water has decreased significantly over the last year or so of focusing on minerals. But I also noticed something with my animals that felt incongruent with this idea of drinking drinking a gallon of water until your urine is completely clear. Right, that this is mm-hmm. the American standard of hydration is is clear, very light colored urine. And I noticed that in the winter, especially that, and that's probably more evident because there's snow, and so urine color becomes a little bit easier to see. But the animals would pee you know, this dark amber Mm. urine and they know, and they weren't thirsty. They had full access to water and to salt licks and mineral blocks and everything that they need. And here they had this dark urine and it was like, Ooh, maybe that's not the best wisdom. It's not actually, (laughs) I don't know. This is, (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've spent time researching this too. And there's actually not a lot of, quote unquote, scientific backing to those statements either. It's, it's very fascinating when you look at what our kidneys are doing. We have, we have a serum part of our blood that's like salt water. It's like the ocean, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. And the kidneys have to just regulate salt, potassium. They have to keep the minerals in balance. They have to sometimes pull out some toxins. They have to, you know, other things, but but they're not really like if you're peeing a lot, there's an issue. Actually, if you're peeing clear, there's something wrong here, which is that you're, you're giving your body too much water and your kidneys are overworking to try to offload the water because the amount of water you took is going to upset the balance of minerals. So it's sort of the opposite situation, which is that should be a sign. Like if you're peeing that much and it's that clear, it's like, okay, I probably have something going on or a detoxing or, there's some other issue, but it's not necessarily a goal. (laughs) No, I, I did an episode on salt and looking at the way that we utilize salt in our bodies and our kidneys process up to five pounds of sodium per day, just in our blood volume. Like they are really made for, for having this. And we are, you know, it's that roomy quote that I'm going to try to get right. You know, you are not a drop in the ocean, but you are an ocean in the drop. And, and we've taken the ocean with us as we exited out of it. And that is where that salt and all of these minerals have come from. Yeah, And so with that, I wonder if we can talk about copper and iron and magnesium. And I actually, I heard you mention this on a podcast, and this is one of two tarot decks that I own, but I own the the Materia Prima deck oh, cool. that you mentioned. And I, there it is, yeah. There. there it is. And I pulled, um, I wondered if we might want to start with copper, and I pulled a quote from that that I thought thought was so beautiful. And this deck is stunning. I'll link to it in the show notes. But if you don't mind, I thought I'd, I'd read the little section on copper. 
Formed from the rupture of massive stars and birthed deep in the soil, copper, that soft pinkish-orange Cinderella, has toiled all her years in mud-filled trenches carrying humanity on her back from the Stone Age to the Information Age. Essential as she is, our very own breath depends on her presence. Superficial, flashier peers often outshine her considerable talents. Yet the shadow does not deter her. Always looking for a way out or a way through a problem, Copper is graceful, resilient, and a tireless queen, a quiet Venus, who steadfastly forges a path through primal wastelands to a starry, enlightened mountaintop. Her acute vision and versatile multitasking have benefited humanity enormously. No one can compete with this goddess's electric power or painterly soul, and her importance to our history is unmatched. Happily, intuitively, we have followed her to the snow-clad peaks of our existence. (laughs) (laughs) And I I thought you might appreciate that, and I would love to hear your take on copper and iron and magnesium, and also on how curiosity fits in. Oh, wow. Copper is, yeah, well... I like that, how they describe, it's carried us from, I don't know if they said the the Bronze Age, but they meant the Old Ages into, like, the Modern Age. Yeah, the Stone Age to the Information Age. Yeah, you know, because we started working with copper as humans probably a lot longer than we know of human history. Copper's been part of, it's been part of just technology as well. So the early technologies being like tools, the bronze tools are are made of copper. And there's, there's of course copper everywhere now all over the place. I don't think people realize that every, every wire you have, you know, if you cut open your wires, they're going to be copper and it's one of the best conductors of electricity. This starts to make sense when you realize its importance within our body is that copper is electric and we're electric in a, we have to conduct electricity and a lot of our enzymes you know we think of them just as pure chemical reactions there's probably aspects to the enzymes that are electrical reactions as well and copper fits into our enzymes they're they're sort of copper plated you know and ah it's just so vast you know so we need we need copper to run basically all of our, our major enzymes. One of the issues is, isn't that, you know, copper is, is scarce. Copper is everywhere. So the question is, you know, there are, there's a phenomenon where we're not getting enough copper. Maybe we can touch on that in just a little bit, but I think the bigger metal that most people are aware of isn't copper. Most people are brought up thinking iron, iron is good. Iron is what we need. And I do a lot of work with doctors, which is really strange to me because I have some clients that I consult, uh, you know, for health and they're doctors themselves. They're not taught any of this stuff. And I've noticed that some of the doctors are really confused now about their education once they've started to get into the mineral world because it starts to unravel that they got half the story. If, if they got any of the story they at all, I mean, the they, get, they get 45 minutes to an hour at times in medical school of nutrition, and it definitely doesn't include anything resembling talking about minerals. Yeah, yeah, but I think most people are more familiar with iron, so it's probably important to understand that we need both. We need copper and iron, but but what 
copper's main role is in our body is to manage iron, is to manage the effects of iron, to keep iron in check. And I always view copper as the queen. And I think even in that card deck, they personified her as a she. It's she's vastly more intelligent than iron, for instance. And I'll pull this up. Yeah, there she is. And her intelligence, it's not a brute force power. We don't need a lot of copper in our bodies. Actually, we don't need very much at all. I, I've heard the analogy, like if you take a football field and you put like a penny on one corner, like that's the amount of copper we need compared to the amount of iron, which would be the rest of the football wow. field. But that amount of wow. copper can manage iron, can keep iron in check because iron is sort of like an unintelligent foot soldier that needs some intelligence to direct where it goes and what it does. And I think now the discussion is becoming clear that copper is very important, but you know, even a few years ago, most people would think, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why copper? Meanwhile, we see iron on everything. This, this milk has been fortified with iron and this cereal has been fortified with iron. And, and there is just this, this cheering on of iron that has become ubiquitous, uh, perhaps in our processed foods and maybe also in our bodies. Yeah. So around the 1920s, they, there was some research that started to be done about iron and I think what the research started to show was that iron's very unique as far as minerals because our bodies don't excrete it. The kidneys don't excrete iron. It doesn't come out in our urine. And we don't excrete it through our bowel movements. When we don't really excrete iron through our sweat, you know, maybe little trace amounts through our hair. But one way we do excrete iron is through blood loss. So that was very clear. But I think that that research started to get a little confused because the conclusions from that research were such that if we're going to have to regulate iron, we got to do it through our mouth, through the intake of iron. And I don't know the intention of the people behind this, or maybe it was pure stupidity, but they took that to mean we should put iron in our foods. But without considering the rest of that research, which showed that, well, the only way we're going to get rid of it is through bleeding. So if we're going to be putting iron into our bodies through fortification of the wheat flour, which is how it started, what's the consequence of that? You know, it, it, can't, it can't just be one consequence, which is we're going to be stronger. It's going to have ripple effects on the rest of our body. And what it has done is... Now, they've put iron in the wheat flour. They've put it, they've doubled the amount in the 60s. Anything that says enriched, you know, and it's in baby formula. It's in milk. It's in all kinds of things. And we're not talking about organic iron that would be found in nature. We're talking about shavings, you know, metal filings, which is inorganic iron. We've decided to choose to inhabit bodies now that have a lot more iron than our grandparents did. That's just a plain yes. fact. And the consequence of having that much more iron is that we have a hard time regulating it. And it causes the loss of other minerals, causes the loss of magnesium, and causes us to have essentially a non-functional enzymes. It depends on everybody's state. Now, some people 
one of the things we didn't talk about is that in our mother, we inherit minerals from our mother. <laughs> Some people are fortunate and they inherit a really good amount of copper just from birth. Yeah, I heard, I heard you mention once that the mother gives almost all of her liver copper stores to the baby in that third trimester and, and through the cord blood uh, via the placenta at birth. And I think, I think this is actually a really important point to mention because the human female body gives its minerals and vitamins preferentially to the baby yeah. at, at the expense of the mother's tissues. Yeah. But if those aren't there to give, then we might start life at a bit of a deficit. Yeah. It's even more, it's even more than giving all of her copper stores because in the, in a human adult liver, we have seven milligrams of copper total. That's it. That's not a lot of copper, but that's what's in the enzymes and what's in the liver of a healthy person and mom has to give 70 milligrams in the third trimester. So she has to give 10 times the copper she has in her own liver into the liver of her baby. So not only, not only giving all her copper, but she has to get enough copper in her diet and muster all of that copper to give it to the baby. And this is one reason why babies sometimes don't get it. It's the mom's diet doesn't have it. And if we start out with not the right amount in our liver, we don't die. We're not, we're not usually that way, but we'll have things. We'll have issues. You know, kids will have sensitivities, sinus infections, strep throat, all kinds of things throughout their life that sort of compound into later symptoms as an adult usually. And that's really just from that very first download wasn't, wasn't given. And then there's like things that sometimes are beyond mother's control, but breastfeeding is very important for mobilizing that copper that was given in utero because the breast milk contains retinol, which is what is needed to activate the copper. And a lot of people aren't breastfed or worse, you know, we ended up getting formula or something and the formula has no retinol, which doesn't activate the copper. And then it's filled with vitamin D and iron, which are two things that kind of oppose the action of copper. So it starts early <laughs> And they aren't, my understanding is they aren't found in human breast milk. They're absent from, from breast milk. And we view this as a pathology, as something that needs to be rectified with these, these man-made synthetic vitamins and not the wisdom that perhaps nature knew best, that there was genius. There. I can't, I can't think of another example of human consciousness gone awry than the fact that we would second guess the ingredients of mother's milk and think, wow, it doesn't have iron and it doesn't have vitamin D. That must be a mistake. Let's fix that. <laughs> I think I, I, it's just, I mean, again, to come back to this word of hubris, because I think that's what it is. And one thing that I do want to say is that I think that this is made worse by the idea that copper is one of the most depleted minerals in our soil. And you actually see this fascinatingly in livestock, depending on where you are and your soil tests, 
veterinarians, you know, in a sort of Western medical model of caring for livestock, right? This isn't a holistic lens, recommend mineral supplements based on what is lacking in soils. And we'll often tell you to give selenium or copper boluses to animals in order to make up for something that's lacking in soils. And, and, you know, obviously this is within that paradigm where a pill is going to fix it and not getting to a root cause. However, I think it's really interesting that we're aware of this in livestock, nor do they add vitamin D or iron to milk replacer in livestock. Yeah. I, I haven't firsthand read these books, but there's a number of books that talk about copper and, and sheep and, and livestock and, I've heard that from other people that there's a, there's a vast knowledge of the need for it in in the grass and the soil, and it's it's addressed totally differently when it comes to animals. <laughs> yeah, uh, and where is that? Where is that delta? Where is that gap when it comes to looking? to human health and saying, okay, we know that animals don't get enough copper because there aren't enough, there isn't enough copper in the soils, probably because we've, we've added this mineral chelator and antibiotic glyphosate to our soils and completely dried them of organic matter and minerals and bacteria and all of these different things. And yet we can't make that what doesn't even feel to the human animal. We can't make that jump to the human animal. Yeah. Mm. That's the, that's the scary proposition is when you start to think about the soil not having copper because many of us in the, in this world of trying to eat from the land and, and eat through the cycles of nature are expecting copper to be in the animals we're eating or in the milk from the animals that we're, we're raising. And to find out that there's no copper would mean that we're not getting the copper either. And I mentioned that, you know, we'll talk about maybe some of the reasons we're not getting the copper, but that I think is first and foremost, you know, you're on the, you're at the crime scene, so to speak, like you see it, but, but it's really scary proposition to think about the fact that copper is being depleted from our soils or it's not being taken up by the plants. And the good news is that we can heal this relationship, that, that there is, that there is a, a root cause within agriculture, and there is also hope in the way that we can regenerate copper using different methodologies, and especially having more and more evidence is showing, and I'm actually talking to a gentleman tomorrow who looks at, he works with Fred Provenza, and he looks at the way that animal agriculture impacts mineral uptake in soils and plants and and looks at that cycle and the metabolomics and just all of the different metabolites that are in regenerative agriculture that aren't present in more conventional agriculture. And so I do just want to say that there's, there is hope there, but it's important to look at that there might be a deficiency at the, at the source. Yeah. And I mentioned, you know, because we've been getting a lot more iron, in the last several generations, the thing that manages iron is copper. So because iron has been going up in our bodies, but copper has been going down, you can start to see that this explains a lot of the dysfunction and mineral dysregulation that people are having. So 
we have copper going down and we have that little penny at the edge of the football field, which is what I can picture. And I, I love that image. And now that's shrinking while the football field is getting bigger. And what can we do to begin to heal? Yeah. Well, I, there's many ways to, to go about thinking about it. There's, there's people that are very much into supplements. I'm not one of those people. Me neither. I, I prefer to get everything from foods if I can. And so eating regeneratively re raised animals that are actually raised with natural soils, you're going to get more copper. You're going to get more of the other minerals that are cofactors and the, the vitamins. And I think most of the people are starting to grab that I know are gravitating more towards ancestral type diets like that. Like Weston A. Price Foundation is a good source for people if they have no clue of, of what to eat. But we have to get more minerals. We have to also get more fat, yes. more real fat. Yes. <laughs> People have been afraid of fat for a long time. Yeah, I think, I think this actually is one of those keystone conversations. I think we mentioned Ansel Keys on every episode of this podcast and that the vilification of fat has wrought so many issues in this, this human body and coming back to all of those beautiful animal fats and to cholesterol, which is so necessary within our organism. And I think is entirely misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of damaging things when everything went low fat, but one of the biggest ones was the inability to make copper bioavailable within our bodies. Mm. Because the, the one thing that makes copper bioavailable is retinol. But it, retinol is found in, you know, those yellow foods that everybody wanted to give up, like the, the butters and the ghees and the heavy creams and liver. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a vitamin that's easy to get otherwise. And there's been a lot of deception about vitamins, which I, I think is part of the problem is that like once we label something a vitamin, then people think, oh, you can just take a supplement. But it's not the same thing. No. Once you take something it's, out of the whole food matrix, right? The whole food matrix has wisdom. You can't isolate it. Yeah. You can't reduce it. Yeah. And so even just talking about the fact that we need retinol to load copper is isolated because there's much more to it. But that system of having copper-rich foods with cholesterol, with saturated fats, we were getting what we needed to manage iron. And that is sort of, it's coming back in certain circles, but there's a lot of people who went down a totally different direction, which was lean meats, low fat, um, lots of like vegetables that don't have the, the nutrient density of let's say animal foods. So it's kind of hard to get, a lot of the nutrients if you go down that way versus eating like a very rich diet. And it's, it's not necessarily the case that you can get everything from diet. There's certain minerals that are very challenging. Like I mentioned, retinol is very challenging. It's very challenging these days to get enough retinol. So that's, there are some supplements that I do tell people you might consider that are whole foods, like a very good cod liver oil. Yes. 
like it has to be really good. Um, but you know, that kind of thing to me isn't a supplement. It's a food. It's just a, a food that contains vitamins that we need. I agree. And I, I think that this is, I, I drink little swigs of cod liver oil, uh, of Rosita's cod liver oil every day. And I, I think that this is an integral part. And I think that it, it has been cod and cod liver oil has been a part of our diet for a long time. I know, um, Mark Kurlansky, who wrote a history on salt, which I think is, is another excellent source of minerals and really left our diet when refrigeration came online and we didn't get this this mineral richness also mm. wrote a book on cod and just how big of a role it's played in in everything in in the rise of western culture and our diets and and as this this substance and so i i think that that is a part of the whole food matrix and getting these these vitamins or, or these whole food gifts, whatever we want to call them in the context of cod liver oil or beef liver, which is one of my, my favorite things or kidneys or spleen, which we occasionally eat here on the farm is, is such a beautiful chance to get it just as it exists. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, most people that I know, it's like, they're now getting turned on to beef liver in the last few years, but they, we didn't grow up with it. I, I grew up with beef liver and I would run, I would run out of the house. If I, if I heard beef liver or smelled it, I just, I didn't want it. And I think it was programming, you know, like you hear other kids tell you, Oh, gross. And then you think it's gross, but I, I don't, these are foods that my grandmother, I've mentioned my grandmother, like she would make all kinds of organ meats and all kinds of interesting things. And to her, it's just, it's just normal. It's just, it is, there's a social stigma or there's a conditioning that happens that gets us out of it. But I think our bodies want those things. They, there's some kind of innate draw to them. And cod liver oil, my, I asked my mother to try to uncover the history of my family because she grew up in Transylvania in the mountains. And I asked her, you know, like, what did you all eat? And she remembers being a kid and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother would come with the cod liver oil and, and the kids would just be, oh no, we have to take the cod liver oil. But it was like every week they had to get a spoon of cod liver oil. I think, wow, that was brilliant. They even knew back then, you know, in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a lot that we've lost just in a couple of generations. And I think that applies to nutritional wisdom from our grandmothers and farming practices. We have lost so much just in that, that short time span and we can return to it. And, and I think that it's people like you that are leading the way at that, that paradigm shift and that return to nourishing ourselves truly and deeply nourishing ourselves and thus nourishing the next generation. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, since we kind of have a basis for copper and iron and maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but some to magnesium and just these really important roles. One thing I wanted to kind of explore was you had a post recently that I loved called mental health is mineral health. And I don't know if you saw the study that came out 
recently that I, you know, and again, I don't put a lot of credence in these things that I think confirmed what some of us have believed for a long time, which is that serotonin isn't necessarily the driver of depression and that these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, may not actually be working in the way that we think. And I, I, was really interested in this as somebody I was put on a lot of SSRIs. I was on five or six different SSRIs as a very young child and I uh, have a relationship to that. But I, I pulled this quote from you that depression isn't just a mood. It's a state of mineral dysregulation. Loss of energy at the cellular level causes systemic changes to the body, mood, and behavior. Much of what is discussed in the context of depression relates to its effects on mood, often characterized by persistent sadness and a loss of interest. Most treatments target the symptoms alone, ignoring the underlying metabolic causes. And within that context, you also talked about the relationship of serotonin and dopamine. And I just really loved this different lens on mental health. And I know that this has also been something that you've worked with within plant medicines and seeing how these neurotransmitters uh, are affected by plant medicines and how plant medicines affect our mineral status. Yeah. I've been on the camp that serotonin is either the cause of depression or not related for a long time. Yes, me too. So now that I, now that I see that the mainstream is coming around, I'm starting to question myself. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you're like, wait, hang on. That's, uh, that's not good because I think to get back to something you said at the beginning, it's good to be weird. I always like that when I'm a little bit of an outlier. I start to get a little suspicious uh-huh. when when the mainstream is onto it because I'm like, oh, what is what are they going to come with next? Yep. You know, <laughs> I could but, not agree more. <laughs> but but the the there's I mean all of that stuff about serotonin is totally well known in the the research literature and the the original studies on SSRIs showed very marginal benefit over placebo, yes. and we know that there's a physical component to depression. It's literally a loss of energy. And that loss of energy, when it, I said there's no separation between the body and the mind and the mood, if the cells can't make energy, guess what? You're, you're going to be depressed. There's, there's no way around it. And there is a link between serotonin and our metabolism. I haven't seen that come to the mainstream yet, but serotonin tends to slow the metabolism, the metabolic rate. So that's why I think, well, maybe it's actually causing depression because too much serotonin, you know, we have blue lights, people living in cities. That serotonin is, is created so much now just based on our environment. But, but more to the point of a mineral basis, the thing that runs our metabolism are the minerals, copper primarily. And if our metabolic rate is slow, it's usually because we're lacking copper in key enzymes and inside the mitochondria. And we can't make energy. And so everything slows down. You lose interest in life. You're sad. That is the state of depression that you know, is characterized by psychology as a, a mood disorder. It's really a mitochondrial metabolic disorder from my perspective. And 
I've worked with so many people in plant medicines and seen one of the reasons I think a lot of the plant medicines do snap people out of a depression has nothing to do with the, the neurotransmitters. It has to do with the fact that the plant medicines up the metabolism a great deal. They upregulate the metabolism. And that increased energy on the metabolic level translates to increased mood and increased interest in life and curiosity and more, you know, creative thinking. And just that's where we should be. This is part of what I see is that's our natural state. But that, that natural state isn't achieved very easily given the conditions of our, our world so by working on the mineral side of things is another way to really increase the metabolism, get the body so that it's making energy and clearing exhaust and then the mood filters and becomes, becomes more in line with that process. It's very complex. I mean, dopamine has been villain. At the same time, serotonin was put on a pedestal for 40, 50 years dopamine just listen to it everyone's like i need a dopamine detox i need this i i or they talk about how addiction is caused by dopamine mm -hmm. yeah dopamine nation is a stolen focus by johan hart like there are books right now that are really looking yeah. at, at how how our dopamine is being hijacked as i think the the kind of way that we view this at this moment in time my perspective on dopamine is that we should be making dopamine. We should have tons of dopamine endogenously. And the reason we don't is probably metabolic as well. We're not, we're not making it because our metabolism has been slowed down. We need a lot of copper to make dopamine. And all of the enzymes that regulate dopamine are copper-based. The monoamine oxidase, and there's a, there's a dopamine, I'm going to butcher the name, but another enzyme that regulates dopamine levels, they're all based on copper. So when you don't have enough copper, you're not going to make enough dopamine. And this is where you fall susceptible to addiction, actually. Because guess what? When we, when we are not having enough dopamine, it's like we seek out things that stimulate dopamine. Because that's our natural state, is we want to be there. Yes. So it's like they fault the thing that stimulates the dopamine instead of questioning, in my mind, why are we not making it? And that's how I've just seen in my own body, my own consciousness that I have really good relationships with things. I don't get addicted to them, but there was a time in my life that I would be much more subject to get addicted to things. And it was a time when I was very low in copper and I wasn't well mineralized because all of those things, they kind of like make you feel normal for a second. And now I just feel normal all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful state of being to be in. And I think, I think too, just from an ancestral perspective, dopamine would have been firing at all times in the most wonderful ways. You know, we find a bush ripe with red berries in August and, and dopamine fires. And we, we look down and we see, you know, some sort of crests or edible food and dopamine fires to remind us where that was and look up and see a deer and, and, our dopamine is telling us where all of these things are in place and time. And I think that it has this, this beautiful role. And in some ways, I think this is a really good transition to ask you about how our modern lifestyles influence our mineral status and interact with it. And I think about, 
you talking about copper as this beautiful conductor. And here we are surrounding ourselves with non-native EMFs and electricity and all of these different blue light and, and flickering lights. And, and just how has hmm, this new world that, that we're not yet adapted to. I mean, maybe, maybe our mitochondria are adapting at a faster pace, but how is it influencing our mineral status and our brains and our bodies? Yeah, this is the conversation that I, I always hesitate to go down because it starts to sound scary for people. Mm. Like, oh, I have to move out into the middle of the woods and yeah. um, have to get away because you start to realize the interplay of all these things and it does become a little overwhelming. Copper is electric. That's not such a big issue with EMFs, believe it or not. Mm. What's more an issue with the non-native EMFs is the iron, because iron is magnetic. And it's... I, I don't have a better example than go stick, a, stick something that has iron in it in your microwave and see what happens. It, actually, don't do that, because it'll, <laughs> it'll cause an issue. <laughs> but you cannot, you cannot under understate the the harm that comes from having bodies filled with iron surrounded by non-native EMFs. One of the things that I experienced was super sensitivity to to EMFs, and I actually ended up moving out of the city to the country, and I couldn't. It didn't. It didn't actually solve the issue for me. I, I used to feel so sick if I went to the city, just like two or three hours. I just, I can't, I'm like, it just felt oppressive. Like there's something wrong. I didn't feel right. Then I come back home, I'm like, I'm okay here. But it wasn't until I started offloading the iron and I do a lot of regular blood donations and the, the protocol that I've been working is called the root cause protocol. I have almost zero sensitivity to non-native EMF now, but Beautiful. it's, it's very much a factor of, our, our environment is, it's getting worse too, because there's more and more types of um, non-native EMFs that we're exposed to. There's a researcher named Martin, I think his name is Martin Paul, maybe, but he, he talks about how for a long time it was unknown how EMFs affect our cells, but his research is all about minerals because they activate, we have um, voltage gated calcium channels. So they say, you know, that minerals run in and out and the EMFs activate those. So then you're getting minerals running in and out. Well, one of the things you're going to have in, in that situation is a loss of magnesium right away. I and mean, you're just going to be burning through magnesium. This causes dysregulation of calcium and iron and other issues. So there's a physical effect about, you know, from being, exposed to non-native EMFs. People don't feel it often. They think they're safe. But I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing that you don't feel it. I consider it, you know, like my situation, I thought, oh, I'm the canary in the coal mine. At least I can feel it because it's telling me to get away. Whereas the other millions of people, they don't feel it, but they're still getting the damaging effects. Yeah. So there's that aspect of our life. There's just, there's an onslaught of things that damage our minerals. Um, the water you know, it depends on, you know, you just took a sip of water, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's, 
there's water, you know, people living in municipalities, the water's filled with fluoride and chlorine and other things, and it doesn't have any good minerals in it. It's just going to strip people of minerals even further. It's going to cause losses of magnesium and other key minerals. And, and then stress. I think people mm. forget stress, mm-hmm. you know, Yes. There's many types of stress. There's the physical stress of like a physical injury, but the other types like emotional stress, or we're stressed about our work, about our finances. Every time we're stressed, we're going to experience a loss of minerals, primarily uh, magnesium at the beginning, but this causes a loss of other minerals. So there's a term that my teacher, Morley Robbins, came up with called the magnesium burn rate. And he just says, you know, the more stress you're exposed to, the more magnesium you're going to burn through. And what we see is that people that start having symptoms, and almost anybody can do this mental experiment, if they have a symptom that came up in their life, physical symptom, if they look at the period before that, usually it was preceded by some kind of period of stress. It doesn't have to always be a big one, but often it is. A death in the family, divorce, a move job stress and that stress causes mineral loss and then symptoms start to appear physical symptoms and so stress can also be from the inside stress is toxins toxins within our body will cause mineral loss and the biggest stressor that people don't realize and we already mentioned it is iron actually (laughs) the presence of iron within our body like Just that presence causes the loss of magnesium, which is why everyone's magnesium deficient probably. We cannot hold on to magnesium in the ways that our ancestors did until we start to manage that iron better. I think that's beautiful. And I actually want to connect something too that you, you talk about. And you mentioned that in talking about this, you never want to stir up fear. And I agree. I think that oftentimes we can talk about all these all these things that are happening and it and it feels scary and it feels overwhelming and I think operating from that place of fear is more detrimental than anything. And you relate fear who whose symbol on the periodic table of elements is FE <laughs> back to iron. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned curiosity before too. That's copper, but Yeah, see you. Yeah. Iron, iron to me is, is something that it doesn't itself have any energy to its own. It, it seems to be a carrier of energy and and emotion and its presence can cause our bodies to have a fear response. So I don't know that I want to make people afraid of iron itself or that say that iron is all bad because iron is also strength. It's the, it's the energy of, it's like steel. It is necessary. It does hold that for us. But the reason that I like the fear part about it is that there's actual evidence that when iron isn't where it's supposed to be, we need it in our red blood cells. We need it in certain places. But when it gets into other areas, those other areas interpret the presence of iron as an attack, that we are under attack. And it stimulates the fear sensor of our cells. Now, our cells have something called an inflammasome, 
which the sense is if something's coming like from the outside, a poison, a toxin, the inflammasome will signal, okay, we need cytokines. We need an immune response. We need to protect. And that protection is that energy of fear. So when iron gets into all these places of our body where it's not supposed to be, our body actually has a fear response to that. And it makes us contract. It, it makes us actually change the whole dynamic. Now this affects our emotions too. Yeah. It affects our nervous system. People don't realize it, but it is. And I can, it's hard to, it's hard to speak about these things, you know, with people that haven't been really deep into the mineral world, but those of us in the mineral world, we can recognize just the interaction with somebody who's got an iron overload issue happening. They tend to be very reactive they tend to be very easily triggered and on edge. Whereas people that have managed their iron better, that have gotten it under control and they have better copper, they tend to be more curious. Meaning you say something that they don't agree with, they don't get all crazy about it. They just, Oh wow, that's interesting. They have more curiosity. (laughs) So this is the difference between fear and curiosity. Mm. They are related to whether, which one is dominant in the body. Mm -hmm. Is copper dominant? In which case you're going to have more curiosity. The world's going to appear more open to possibilities. You're not going to be so narrow in your focus, in your, your sphere of observation. But the more iron you have, the more you contract. Your consciousness contracts, your body contracts. And I consider that a fear response. And I think, I think we're seeing that in, you know, another, another space that I'm really passionate about right now is finding ways to build more bridges in, in a community, in a world that constantly seems to want to divide. And I think that is from fear. And, and I think that curiosity is a beautiful lever that we can pull and it guides us with a such a different such just such a different felt sense of the world and so i i really like that that lens and that iron is two things it's not just you know it's it's many things it's not just fear it's also strength that there there are always going to be different pieces to this puzzle and I think that that's really important, and I think that speaks to some to. And I pulled I pulled another quote from you. It's not always necessary to figure out what came first: the emotional trauma that led to mineral dysregulation, or the physical dysregulation that leads to emotional dysregulation. The healing is the same. We must address our foundation, our physical body made up of minerals and water, and the aspects of consciousness. Doing both at the same time is the way to end the loops that develop, keeping us from progressing in our process. And I think that that just sums up a lot of what you just said. And as we we search for, well, is it is it this or is it that? And it comes back to this idea of the mind-body being a whole that's inseparable and mm-hmm. just informing and looping a sort of recursive and a sort of connectivity that I don't think we could ever put a name to. Mm-hmm. That's happening. Yeah, it's interesting to me that quote that you just read, it's kind of informed by my experience that a lot of people experience really, really hard events in life. A lot of people have very, very 
difficult upbringings or difficult situations. And you would think that everybody would have the same response, Mm -hmm. but it's not true. No, it's not. Some people develop deep, deep traumatic wounds from those. And some people don't. And it's interesting that the, the people that don't there, there's some aspect to their physiology, their biology, not just their consciousness that is at play there. And so if somebody's already in a state of vulnerability because they're minerally deficient, there's some iron dysregulation, they're already in that fear response, they're already in that contracted state, then difficult things happen and that causes a cascade where you can't quite heal from it. It starts to you know, become perpetual. And in the world of psychology, they'll just address the trauma just address that part, not realizing that the trauma itself, the psychological, the emotional is causing a physical issue, or it is the result of a physical issue. And so a lot of the things that I see, you know, I have a lot of friends who are therapists. I have a therapist in my family, you know, just psychotherapy is that if, if you really want to heal, you can't just talk about the emotions. You can't just do that work. I mean, you have to address some of the foundational aspect of minerals. And the quickest healing I've seen is when people, they replenish their bodies. Now, of course, you've got the energy to heal. Very important that you have to have the energy. Yes. Oh, now you've got the energy. You've got the curiosity. You've got the willingness. It makes it a lot easier to do the psychological and the emotional healing. Oh, I could not, I could not agree more with that. And I know that that has been my experience as somebody who's suffered from chronic fatigue and has dealt with traumas that, that bringing my body and healing my body and finding, I mean, honestly, a big of that big relationship with that was eating meat and coming back to that space. It changed my relationship with all of those things. And so I I just think that's, fantastic. And it actually leads me right into, I know we're been going for a while and I want to be respective of your time, but you had this quote about integration and I loved this. And I think that this is a perfect thing to, to sort of begin to wrap up on that integration is not just for things learned through plant medicines. We must take time to integrate everything we learn regardless of the source. And I thought this was so beautiful during this time when we are inundated with information and we are constantly accessing this world of the internet and all of the information that's on Instagram or in books, all of which are just at our fingertips. And I think that we need these cycles. I come back to this a lot in my work that we used to perceive time. I'm going to bring this back a little bit to the beginning. We used to perceive time cyclically that that the way that we view time is also cultural and it's also linguistic. And before sort of linear Cartesian Newtonian mechanics came on board, we really just viewed it through the lens of nature and her cycles of spring and summer and fall and winter or death into rebirth. And so time wasn't actually a a line, but more of a, a recursive circle. And within that, there were seasons of rest. 
And I know that when I moved to the farm, something that I was really interested in was having this experience of winter and this time to do a little less and to lean into what it means to rest from, from both physical and intellectual work. And so this idea of integration really gets to the heart of that for me, that we need periods where we're not taking in, we're just allowing things to infuse through us. Not just... Yeah. I think it's even more important these days because we're bombarded by information. And there's a trap for the curious that I've discovered, which is it's really easy <laughs> to find something that oh, wow, this is it. This is it. And then you're, you think that's it. And I see it with other people that work in the health sphere too. You know, some actually very prominent influencers that I know as well, they get so enamored by some thought process that they get more myopic. And, and what I've found for me is that I need those periods of time where I've taken in something and I'm not acting upon it yet. I'm just letting it kind of resonate for a little bit and then trying to see how it plays out in my life before I go and do something big. You know, I used to be the type of person that I wanted to heal some of these issues that I was having so quickly that I'd hear a podcast and I'd go right out and buy everything they said. And I, I have been there too. It's like a, it's an impulse because we love ourselves and we want to do these things, but I think there's a necessary period of reflection and <clears throat> truth kind of will coalesce in a different way if we give it time. And like, I liked that you mentioned the winter because it's, it's the opposite where I live in the desert. We have nine months of beautiful weather, but then come June, it becomes our winter where everybody huddles inside and everything slows down and you can't do anything because it's hot. And I usually take off work, most of my work in the summer to just allow that rest of the year to kind of form itself. And I try not to make very big decisions during this time, but just kind of let things sort of coalesce. I think the reason I made that post was, was also related to the fact that I started to share some information and it was very paradigm shifting for a lot of the people that were reaching out. And what I wanted them to understand was that that in and of itself, when you encounter a paradigm shift, you need to go slowly because you can quickly find yourself feeling like you're crazy. Yes. especially surrounded by people that don't share that new view that you think, okay, wow, I you know, like iron or whatever it is. If you're all of a sudden in this camp, that's like so against the grain, which I've been there many times in my life. Like I told you, Me too. then if you're not used to that feeling, it can actually push you into a, a kind of a crisis. I've seen it happen with people where, it's too much. And then it becomes like an existential crisis. Like, Oh my God, you know, my whole worldview has changed and I don't know what to do about it. So I'm also just saying, you know, go slowly with these things because you don't want to find yourself, you know, 
without anybody to talk to. <laughs> it can be another form of isolation is when you adopt new views. All of a sudden, there's no community to support you. You have to find a new community. It's like that. Yes, and I think... I think a lot of us have experienced a lot of paradigm shifts in the last two years for one reason or another. And I think that another piece of that is I know that I've always been a little bit of the odd man out and I've always been a little bit kind of on the fringe and a little bit of a weirdo. And so I'm accustomed to that feeling. But I think that this idea that we can still have community with those of us that don't share our exact same beliefs and our exact same views, while it's important to be able to have sounding boards and to be able to have community with like-minded individuals, it's also just important to have community. And I remarked to somebody the other day that I think that the internet has created an interesting space where we can just pick everything that's the same. Yeah. But when we're in a physical community, which we've lost so much of in, in these last 50, 60 years, you know, the same time that the soils have become depleted and that we haven't gotten enough fat and that our minerals have become depleted, we have also lost the sort of, I don't want to call them forced communities, but, but that you, you went to church or you went to a town hall within your community and it was with people that you were just kind of stuck in the vicinity with. And they're not going to all be the same as you. And I think that we're going to be the richer for it. Yeah. And so just continuing to have that connection. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think um, it's when we have to, I have to remind myself of that quite regularly. It's easy to find yourself in the echo chambers, you know. It is. And it's, it's hard to get out of them. I actually find it easier in real life where you can't just hit that unfollow button right. when somebody <laughs> says something you don't agree with. But when I'm here in real life with my neighbors who all, I mean, my neighbors just, just on my street here in the sticks all have incredibly different views from one another, from me, you know, I mean, it's a real patchwork quilt of viewpoints and it's so beautiful. I love all, I love going to dinner at everyone's house, even though they have, it's, it's, it's all very different. And I think that that's, it's good and it's healthy. And I think it strengthens something in us. That's awesome. The last thing I want to ask is about sound healing. I don't want to miss this piece of your work because I think it's, so beautiful. And I think that this is also a part of magic that connects us at a cellular level that mm. we could never name. Yeah. That's been the common thread through all of the adventures in my life has been working with music and sound. It's my primary form of medicine for me, which is I like to sit and sing and chant. And I started to share a lot of that with people, uh, little over 10 years ago, working with the field of sound healing, where we use all kinds of instruments like gongs and singing bowls and flutes and drums to help people really drop into their bodies and drop into deeper states of relaxation and explore consciousness in a very safe way. The thing I love about sound is that I think all of the traditions that I've worked with in every spiritual tradition that I know of works with sound in some way. It's it's kind of the gateway into the deeper parts of our consciousness. So one of the things that I do regularly is I teach people to work with sound. That's still, I get a lot of joy out of 
leading trainings for people that want to explore that. I found, I, you know, I find interesting also that gongs, which is one of the primary instruments I work with, they're mostly made out of copper. <laughs> <laughs> of course they are. Yeah. And we use crystal singing bowls and different, different elements, you know, and there's definitely, there's interesting aspects to the way the sound resonates within our bodies. It, it works in the water of our cells, you know, sound vibrates the cells and I don't think we fully understand exactly what's happening, which is kind of the beauty of it. There's, there's a mystery, but people can experience it firsthand and think, wow, this is really amazing. And so I do offer sound training both online and in person. And it's just, it's so much fun. And that's one of the ways that I really like to, to see people come together. We always have such a fun time in my sound trainings because it's people from all walks of life but we all coalesce around music and using our voices and playing instruments and there's so much to say about it but i always tell people when they ask about so what's the what's up with the sound i thought you were the mineral person i say, well sound doesn't mess up your minerals so it's it's a good form of medicine <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it does. It changes the structure of our body. I know, um, oh, I can't, Emoto. Emoto's work with water crystals and and the water inside of our bodies is, a, like, we are liquid crystals. And, it, and, and sound is going to shift and change that and move through us. And so I, I love this piece of your work. And I think it's really important. Yeah. And I have music online. People, if they're interested in meditation music, they can always find me that way, too. It's, it's good to, you know, relaxation music, put on headphones. And, and we'll put some links to that in the show notes, too so that people can easily find it. I, at the end of every episode, I ask people the same question, which is, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And, and this can be at the level of just the individual, or it can be at the level of the collective. And I think you've, you've had a lot of answers within the context of this podcast, but. To lay the groundwork. That's fascinating. My, my biggest mission is to always remind people that, the healing that they seek, the, the insights they seek are usually within them, that it's more of a practice of uncovering to taking off the layers, to taking off the, the defense mechanisms that we have to seeing our own truth and to, to allowing our bodies to heal. Because I do believe that every person is their own healer. Every person has is, is got the power within them. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that you grew your body, you're constantly regrowing your body, you know, this is just part of the understanding is that we're always healing ourselves. We're always the ones doing it. And so my groundwork is always to provide kind of a reminder to people that you are your own healer. You are the shaman. You know, my Instagram handle is mineral shaman, but I put on there and people ignore it, but there's, there's just the minerals in my mind are the shaman. The minerals are themselves the healers. But so are the elements, the sun, the earth, the water, the air. And then, of course, you. Each person is their own shaman or healer or curandero or whatever term you want to put. So just, just remembering that. I think that's so beautiful. And I know that and we talk about this a lot on this podcast, but 
I've gotten to see that firsthand through regenerative agriculture and through just looking at nature and that ability to heal that is so profound. It's us. We're, we are that. And to see that mirrored back to us, I think, in, in real time at times can be a real gift in the way that, that nature is just incredibly resilient and that we are incredibly resilient and that minerals are incredibly resilient. Tell everyone where they can find you and where they can work with you. Okay. Because you then work directly with you, and I think this is important. Yeah, if people want to work with me in their health journey, and I do work with minerals, and my website is mineralshaman.com. If they want to work with me in sound or find anything about my sound trainings or just connect, they can go to my website, which is just my name, Hamid, H-A-M-I-D, Jabbar, J-A-B-B-A-R.com, HamidJabbar.com. And either way, you can get in touch and, you know, there's plenty of, oh, on, <laughs> also on Instagram, Mineral Shaman, I forgot. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty easy to find. Too. So, And your words are just, your words are medicine. The way that you put these thoughts into the tangible realm of words is, is such a, it is a paradigm shifter. And it is also just a, an invitation to the healing that is so inherent. And I think it, I'm just so grateful for them and for the work that you're putting out there and for you spending time talking to me. And I know, I know we could talk all day and hopefully we covered some different things you've talked about. I mean, there's so much on some of the podcasts that you've done. And so we can link to those as well because you just, your breadth of knowledge is is stunning. Yeah. On each of those websites I mentioned, there's a podcast page and I'll, I'll be adding this podcast when it comes out, but I, I put up all the podcasts that I'm on on those pages so that people can find them easy. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kate. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>